Uh, one other announcement. Uh, this week, we've got that the pastor's conference, Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Now, 7 o'clock is a little early for you to get there. Don't worry about that. Just come when get there when you can get there. And uh, just come on quietly, slip in the back. On um, um, Thursday, I'm leaving after uh, that afternoon to go to Kiev for two weeks to teach over at Jim Myers Seminary. I'll be teaching on pneumatology in the morning from 9 to noon to his students there. And then on um, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday night of both weeks, I will be teaching uh, an open public lecture for uh, who knows how many people will show up on Israel, Islam, and biblical prophecy. And we'll spend a lot of time talking about God's plan for Israel and anti-Semitism. And this is important, and I hope that you remember this in prayer, because the Ukraine and, of course, the old Soviet Union is historically, since the days of the old Tsars, has been a hotbed of anti-Semitism. And, in fact, the word pogrom, which describes the continuous uh, persecution of Jews, uh, the term pogrom is a Russian word. And so it's we touched on this subject a little bit last year when I was teaching on demonism. We touched a little bit on biblical prophecy. And when I started talking about God's future plan for Israel, all kinds of eruptions occurred and people started asking questions. And it became obvious to both Jim and myself that we needed to spend a lot of time teaching on this particular subject. So he wanted me to come back and address this again this year. So that's one reason I'm going back. Not only do we have a problem of traditional inbred cultural anti-Semitism over there, but you also have the problem that in the vacuum that's created since the downfall of the old Soviet Union, and all the different American uh, missionary groups that have gone into uh, Ukraine and other areas over there, a lot of these folks are uh, are into replacement theology. So the those who have become Christians have been taught uh, a replacement theology system that God has replaced Israel with the church. So once again, the Israel is no longer important, and Zionism or the return of Israel to the land, to their historically promised land by God, even though their return now is in unbelief and it's not the uh, ultimate return of regenerate Israel, has nothing to do with biblical prophecy. And so I have to spend a lot of time on about a half a dozen passages in the Old Testament showing clearly that God does plan a return of unregenerate Israel to the land prior to the tribulation so that the events of the tribulation can take place. So it's a, it'll be a lot of fun and quite a challenge, and I'm sure I'm going to get some really interesting questions. So you can pray for me. Now, while I'm gone, I will be, two places, I will be in two places at one time because with the uh, wonders of electronic media today, we are videotaping the Bible classes for the next two Wednesday nights, and so the Wednesday night schedule will not change. This week, we have the pastor's conference. So Wednesday night, we won't have class here, but everybody will be coming to the pastor's conference over at North Stonington. The next two weeks, we will be back to our regular schedule, prayer meeting at 7, Bible class at 7.30, and that will be done through uh, video. So that will be the next two lessons 
in the uh, Salvation Series. So nobody has an excuse for missing. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men, whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we begin our study of Second uh, John this morning, let's have a few moments of silent prayer so you can use First John 1, 9 if necessary. Make sure you're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit. And then we'll begin our study. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we have the privilege to live in this nation, this nation where we have freedom to worship, freedom to assemble, freedom to study your word and apply your word. Father, we continue to pray for our nation, for its protection, for its security. We know that this, no matter how uh, technologically advanced our military is, no matter how uh, much the government works to provide security, that there is no security in anyone else than you. And no matter what our failures might be, we know that our security rests in you and that you control history. And our security, our protection, the future of this nation is in your hands. Father, we pray that you would guide and direct our leaders, that uh, our president, our military leaders, our leaders in Congress, you would give them wisdom, uh, give them guidance. We pray for those serving in the military, those from this congregation, those who are on tape from this congregation, that you would watch over them, protect them, give them courage if they uh, need courage in, in battle. We pray that you would uh, also give them opportunities to communicate doctrine and to uh, share the truth with those with whom they serve. Father, we thank you for this time that we have to study your word, that it is the light of your word that illuminates our thinking, that enables us to understand what truth is, that truth is in your word, that your word contains truth, your word communicates truth, and all of your word is absolute truth. And it is in the light of your truth that we are able to understand, evaluate the things of life, the circumstances of life, the details of life that surround us. Now, Father, as we continue our study concerning the importance of love and just what love is, we pray that you would help us to uh, see what your word has to say and that we might take this information in order to overhaul our own conceptions of what love is. We pray this now in Christ's name. Amen. We continue our study in Second John 6 this morning talking about love. Love is one of those central dimensions about human life that everybody seems to think they have some sort of intuitive, absolute knowledge about. Uh, it 
affects everything in life. Almost everything you listen to on the radio, every song, has something to do with love. It's either about finding love, or if it's a country western song, it's about losing it. Or, if it, I guess if it's a 50s rock song, it's about trying to find it, dreaming about it. But love is, as someone said, love is what makes the world go round. It's what makes romance novels sell. It's what keeps people watching soap operas every afternoon. Everybody thinks they know something about love, and everybody's had some sort of experience about love. But what I've found over the years is that very few people have ever really said much of real substance about love. What is love? Last time we started on this, and, and the key principle we have to understand is the concepts, especially abstract concepts such as love, honor, righteousness, truth, virtue, must derive their meaning not from some sort of secular consensus, some societal uh, concept of what love, love is or honor or truth, but they must derive their ultimate meaning from what the Word of God says they are. Love is what it is, and we define love not because of some collective experience with love, not because of our own uh, adolescent experiences with love, but the starting point is what God says love is and how God defines love. Love is one of those words that is extremely difficult to define. I remember some years ago when I was writing and, and we were trying to come up with a, a definition for love in one of the books we were doing and how difficult it was to define love. In fact, even if you look at Scripture, the Scriptures, love is de- described, not defined. Now, there's a difference between describing something and defining something. And to define love is very difficult. If you look up uh, the word love in a dictionary, it focuses on uh, love as an emotion. Now, if you were to take the definitions you find in Webster's or the uh, new or, or the American Heritage Dictionary or uh, the uh, uh, OED, the Oxford English Dictionary on love, and you were to apply those to many of the biblical passages that talk, talk about God's love, you would end up in blasphemy and heresy because those definitions don't fit. And that tells us right away that when we start talking about love as God defines it, it is going to there are going to be components to it and aspects of that love that are 180 degrees opposite what most people think of as love and the cultural conceptions of love. And so we must make sure that we don't... Uh, uh, front load our definition of love or even back load our definition of love with a lot of human viewpoint concepts. We have to start with the scriptures and, and that's true for all of these areas. Abstract concepts do not exist. I mean we get we, we talk that way, people act that way, but that's a hangover from old Greek philosophy and Platonism that, that talked as if these these ideals had some sort of independent existence as ideals. That's why philosophically it was called idealism, as if love and honor, uh, righteousness, uh, fairness, had some sort of independent existence on their own. 
But these, the Bible says, don't exist independently. They are in the character of God. God's character itself is the benchmark for defining all of these concepts. So it's only by going to the Word of God and God's revelation of himself that we can come to have an accurate understanding of what do these things mean. And especially when it comes to a concept such as love, we must go to the Word of God because one of the problems that we have in our society, one of the reasons we have a breakdown in marriage and breakdown in the family and breakdown in relationships is because the further our culture gets away from its biblical roots, the less we understand what love is. And, of course, the further we get from our biblical roots, the more self-absorbed and arrogant we become, which is just the opposite of love. So last time we began to look at this this whole study from the framework of 1 John 1, 5, and 6. Now, let's go back and just review the previous verse. John wrote, he said, Now I ask you, lady, he's getting into the main part of the epistle, and he's addressing the church through the um, uh, personification of calling the church a lady. He says, Now I ask you, lady, not as writing to you a new commandment. And this term, new commandment, goes back to Jesus' statement in John 13, 34, and 35, that I give you a new commandment, that you love one another, even as I have loved you. And last time we spent our time studying the difference between Jesus' commandment to love one another as I have loved you and the Old Testament commandment in Leviticus 19:18 that we were to love one another as we loved ourselves. And I made the point that in the Old Testament commandment, the command was addressed to the entire nation of Israel composed of believer and unbeliever alike, that they were all expected to love others, that is, both believer and unbeliever alike, as they loved themselves. And I made the point that the analogy was that man on his own, self-absorbed in sin nature, automatically puts himself in first place and wants himself to be treated well, and the thrust of the commandment was to treat others as you would be treated. And Jesus transformed the commandment with the new commandment. He addresses the disciples, and he says, You, so this command is addressed to believers now, not unbelievers and, un- and believers as the Old Testament was, but it's addressed to believers only. You love one another. One another is believers, not unbelievers. So the new commandment is addressed to believers to love other believers as I have loved you. Not as you love yourselves, but as I have loved you. So it shifts from being an experimental base or experiential base as you love yourself to an objective base as I have loved you, as is going to be demonstrated on the cross. So this is the new commandment. So John says, I'm not writing to you a new commandment. This is any different. This is the same one which we've had from the beginning. That is the one that Jesus gave in the upper room discourse, John 13, 34, and 35, that we love one another. In 1 John 1, 6, he says, and this is love. So he's going to start defining, again, what love is. Uh, this is love that we walk according to his commandments. So how do we know love? What is the measuring rod? What is the barometer? How do you evaluate yourself to see if your life is one that is characterized by love? In 1 John 3.16, he gives us the starting point for understanding love, where he said, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us. 
So that's the starting point. It doesn't matter what else you think about love, how you think love is applied. When the scripture defines love, it starts at the cross, at what God did from eternity past in providing for man's salvation. So we have to stop and break love down in terms of what took place on the cross. And we see that from eternity past, God and his omniscience knew that man would fail. So God took the initiative to solve the problem. The object of God's love is not a creature that is positive to him. It's not a creature that is responsive to him. It's not a creature that is attractive to him. It is a creature that is seen as unrighteous and fallen, a creature that is incompatible with his creator, a creature that is in rebellion to his creator, a creature that is unattractive and obnoxious to his creator. So the model begins by demonstrating that love is not something that is grounded in uh, compatibility. It's not something that is grounded in attraction, and it is not something that is grounded in rapport. See, man, when man starts off thinking about love, immediately for there to be love, there has to be attraction, compatibility, and rapport. But when God starts off talking about love, it's grounded in the fact that those three things don't exist. It's grounded in character. It's grounded in the character of the one who loves, which is God himself. And so love cannot be discussed apart from the virtue of God's integrity. So we start by looking at the motivation, which is God's own character, his own uh, uh desire to do that which is best for his creatures. And he made a plan. He not only had initiative, he made a plan to provide a perfect solution for the creature, a plan that included sacrifice on his part. It is talked about in that way that that God the Son would uh, limit himself by taking on uh, a human body, entering into space-time history as an infant in the... um, uh, at, at Bethlehem, and then he would grow to maturity. He would live in a sinful world. He would live in association with, with fallen creatures. He would experience in his body the uh, troubles and travails and the suffering that goes along with living in a fallen world. And then he would ultimately go to the cross where between 12 noon and 3 p.m. God the Father would judge him for the sins of the world, and the penalty and the payment for all the sins in human history would be poured out on him. This was a horrible thing for him to uh, anticipate and for him to go through. It was a time when he who knew no sin, the perfect Savior, was made sin for us, and during that time, judicially, he was made obnoxious to God the Father on our behalf. And this was what God's love entailed that he did more than was necessary in order to solve the problem that existed between him and his creature. So that is the starting point for love. Now the next thing that we discover as we go through the scriptures is that, as we see here in in, in Second uh, John 1, 6, is that love is not only not only is it exemplified primarily in the starting point at at the cross, but love is also consistently associated with the concept of keeping God's commandments. That means there is an 
objective standard that goes along with love. Now, that really runs counter to the way most of us think, because most of us are so ingrained as to thinking of love as some sort of feeling, some sort of an emotion, some sort of uh, attraction based on compatibility, that we don't ever think about love in terms of uh, following a certain, certain code of conduct. To us, when you say code of conduct, that, some people immediately think some kind of legalism. But that's not what legalism is. Remember, legalism is the, any concept where you think that your behavior, uh, your thinking, your attitudes, your actions somehow, uh, acquire or approbation from God or gain you merit before God. That's not what we're talking about. God has a code of conduct. Uh, we call it sometimes a, a protocol plan. There are uh, prohibitions and there are positive mandates within that code of conduct, things to do and things to avoid. And when we live consistent with that, that is defined as love. Now, I can already hear somebody saying, well, that sounds awfully Awfully rigid. That sounds awfully mechanical. Love is something that is, oh, it's warm and it's sentimental. I said, well, where do we get that? Where do you get the idea of sentimentality and warmth and from, from the scriptures? Now, I'm not saying that that's not ever there, but I'm saying is that if we if we put a diagram up here on the using the overhead for a minute. If we put a diagram up here, and this is true for any word, this is true for any word that you're going to going to define, you have to look at the the core meaning of a word, because because words have have core concepts, core core meanings, and they can pick up secondary and, and tertiary meanings, uh, idiomatic meanings, figurative meanings along the way. But you always have to start with the, the core meaning, the core concept. And see, ideas like sentiment and warmth and, and uh, romance, those are secondary ideas to the core meaning of love. And see, if you don't have the core meaning right, and you're just dealing with some secondary aspect out here, then what happens, especially in a marriage or in a family relationship, as soon as something negative happens, as soon as the object for your love becomes less than attractive, as soon as that person makes some major failure in life, as soon as your kid does something or or, or your husband does something or your wife does something that doesn't fit your idea of perfection or your idea of marriage or your idea of family, then, then your whole concept of love all of a sudden is shot. And you've got, a, instead, of, instead of something solid at the core of the relationship, you realize that there's nothing at the core of the relationship, and it starts to fragment and fall apart. And unfortunately, that's what's true in most relationships in most people's lives, is because they're operating on a totally uh, false view of love and a vacuous view of love that can't handle any kind of difficulty, any kind of, of problem. This is love that's got to be based on a solid understanding of Scripture. The other problem we have with love, and one I want to address in more detail this morning, is that we have a rather truncated or superficial view of love. We don't have a view of love 
that is uh, fully developed. We don't have a view of love that is all-inclusive, a view of love that really uh, addresses every complex area of life. And let me get, I'm going, you'll see what I mean when we get into some of the examples, but the cl- classic example is that, that in, in the old 19th century liberalism that operated on a, on a human viewpoint derived concept of love, they would come to the Bible and they would separate the Old Testament from the New Testament and they would say, see in the Old Testament you have this harsh God. This uh, unloving God, the, the God of the Old Testament is the the judging Jehovah, and yet the New Testament you have uh, the loving Jesus, and they would draw this contrast, this conflict between the Old Testament God and the New Testament God, and of course to do that you have to, which was typical of liberalism, is to take out your razor blade, and and go through and. Uh, surgically remove large sections of the Old Testament that do speak of God's love. And there are many, many examples of God's love in, in the Old Testament. But it's interesting that even in the Old Testament, love is uh, connected again and again with the idea of keeping Commandments. There's always this objective standard. It's not left up to you in some sort of subjective way to get in touch with your feelings and decide, well, did I love God today? Well, how did I feel about him? Was, did I have certain warm feelings about him? Did I have warm, fuzzy thoughts about God? And yet this is so typical of, of uh, uh, people today, and yet that's not what the Scriptures teach. Uh, let's look at some Old Testament examples, or I'll, I'll give you some, and, and we'll look at some passages in a minute. In Exodus 20, verse 6, we read, But God is showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. See, love, loving God is related to keeping his commandments. Deuteronomy 5.10 says almost the same thing, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Love is related to obedience. Deuteronomy 7, verse 9. Know therefore the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant. Notice that the the love of God, it's going to go on to say, and his loving kindness, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness. Part of God's love is that he keeps his promises. That's part of love. And God, the faithful God, who keeps his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation, with those who love him and keep his commandments. Love and keeping his commandments are tied together again. Deuteronomy 11, uh, 13, If you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him. Serving him is, is tantamount to keeping his commandments. Other passages that emphasize this in the Old Testament are Deuteronomy 11:22, Deuteronomy 19:9, and Nehemiah 1, 5. Throughout the Old Testament, you have this connection of love to serving God and keeping his commandments. We don't lose that in the New Testament at all. And so if you think of keeping his commandments as somehow legalistic, then you run into a problem. John 14:15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So what's the barometer, Jesus says, for loving me? It's keeping my commandments. John 15:10 If you keep my commandments you will abide in my love just as I have kept my father's commandments. See this is walking consistent with that code of conduct for the believer. That is exemplifies love. 1 John 5:2 and 3 By this we know that we love the children of God 
when we love God and observe his commandments. For this is the love of God, that our love for God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Once again, loving God is related to keeping his commandments. And then our verse in 2 John 1, 6. So what we see is that love is related to and measured by obedience to God's command. Well, we can draw some application from that. That is, that if you're going to love God, you have to keep his commandments. But to keep his commandments, you have to know his commandments. And to know his commandments means that you have to make the knowledge of his word a priority in your life so that you can understand all of the everything that God has to say and what those mandates and prohibitions are. Now, when we... When we look at the Old Testament sometimes, we're tempted to think that the Old Testament is a little bit different from the New Testament. But when Jesus was asked to summarize the Mosaic Law, all 613 commandments, or, or to ask what the greatest of those was by a Pharisee in Matthew 22:36, Jesus answered in Matthew 22:37 by saying, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and foremost commandment. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On those two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. In other words, Jesus is going to summarize all the mandates, all the prohibitions in the Old Testament under two general commands. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. They either, they're either commands or prohibitions that are related to your relationship directly to God or your relationship to other human beings. And all those commandments that describe your relationship with other human beings fall into the category of loving one another as you love yourself. The Apostle Paul, the great apostle of grace, makes the same type of summary in Romans 13.9. Reciting the law in the Ten Commandments, he says, You shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, Paul says, it is summed up in this saying, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. So what Paul is saying is, if you want to understand the Mosaic Law, it's summarized in one word, and that's love. Now that's not your typical response of people. People think, oh, the Ten Commandments is very harsh. You've got a judgmental God there. How can, how can that be love? Well, maybe you need to completely... Uh, revamp your concept of what love is. See, we have this truncated view of God that simplifies it down to just this sort of sentimental, ooey-gooey emotionalism. So we have to to look at this to really comprehend and understand uh, what the Bible says about love. So we're going to start with it in a place where most people don't, and that's that's the Old Testament. But before we get started, let's um, break a few things down. First of all, Scripture makes it clear that God is love. Point number one, Scripture states God is love. 1 John 4, 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. 1 John four sixteen, and we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. So here we have a clear statement. from John, that God is love. God is love. 
Now there's another statement that John makes in 1 John 1.5. This is point number 2. 1 John 1.5, John says that God is light. And this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. So here's a second point we put up here on the overhead. God is light. Now, light is a metaphor for God's holiness in the Scripture, his holiness or his purity. Light is contrasted with darkness. Darkness represents sin. And so light is a metaphor for his holiness, which is comprised of two two attributes, righteousness and justice. Now, the thing we must remember about righteousness and justice is that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, the same word group is used to describe both of these concepts in English. In English, we we tend to think of them as different. But in both Greek thought and earlier Hebrew thought, they were seen to be almost two sides of the same coin. In the Hebrew, in which the Old Testament was originally written, we have... um, uh, tzedak, or tzedek, the noun form, tzedek, which is uh, T-Z-A-D-I, actually it's a double D there, I think, I-Q, for righteousness. And in the uh, Greek, it's based on the root dike, uh, from which we get words like, um, I'll just write these in English, dikaiosune, Dikaiosune for righteousness, uh, dikaiao for to justify or make righteous, uh, dikaios for, uh, for justification. So you have either sadiq in the Old Testament or decay in the New Testament, but they both relate to the same basic concept as In terms of righteousness, the emphasis is on the absolute standard, the absolute standard of perfection. This is the, whenever you make judgment, you make a judgment or evaluation according to some standard. So righteousness refers to the standard side of the coin. Justice, the J, refers to the application of that standard. So that righteousness refers to the absolute standard of God's character, and justice refers to the application of that standard. But that just refers to the second metaphor that is used to describe God. The first is that God is love. So we have two statements that are made about God's character, that God is love and God is light. But there are many other attributes of God that are mentioned in Scripture, but those two are used to almost summarize all of God's character. So if we put the essence of God up on the screen, we know that God is sovereign. That means he is the ultimate ruler and the ultimate determiner of everything that goes on in the universe. He is righteousness. He is justice. He is love. He is eternal life. There is no beginning and no end to God. There never was a time when God did not exist. He is uh, not temporal. Time does not apply to him. He is omniscient. He knows all that is knowable. He knows all the potential. God is omnipresent. That means he is 
equally present and fully present to every aspect of creation equally at all times in human history. There is no place that man can go in heaven or hell where he escapes the presence of God, Psalm 139. He is omnipotent. God is able to do all that he desires to do and all that he wills to do. There is nothing that is impossible with God. God is veracity. He is absolute truth. He is the definer of truth. And he is immutable. God does not ever change. Now, when uh, we look at these various attributes, we discover that again and again in the Scriptures that certain attributes seem to be linked together uh, again and again. This is point number three. Four attributes seem to be linked together as if they form an integral relationship, and that we call the integrity of God. These are the elements. Righteousness, love, justice, and truth form the integrity of God. They are um, interrelated and interdependent. Actually, all of the attributes of God are interrelated and independent. We only break them apart and talk about these ten attributes as such for academic reasons, just to come to understand the different components, the different attributes that make up God. But they all function together. God isn't just sovereign one day and, and righteous the next and omniscient the next. They, they all work together in a, in a harmonious whole all of the time. But these four are linked together again and again in the Old Testament. For example, in Psalm 33.5, we read, He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. And here we see that love, righteousness, and justice are linked together. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the loving kindness of the Lord. Psalm 85.10 brings in truth, loving kindness and truth have met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Psalm 89.14, Righteousness and justice are the foundation of thy throne. Loving kindness and truth go before thee. And then Jeremiah 9.24, But let him who boasts, boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on the earth, for I delight in these things. So righteousness, love, justice, and truth are often linked together. Truth is one other aspect of righteousness. If God is absolute, then truth would be that related to that absolute standard of God. So righteousness, love, justice, and truth form the integrity of God. In many ways, we could take uh, any one of those three and extrapolate those and use those to, to describe the rest of them. And this is done under a figure of speech. This is done under a figure of speech. Now, this is, this is where coming to Bible class is going to do something for you that going to uh, public school never did for you. When you went to public school, if you had any kind of education at all, which you probably didn't, you at least learned what a simile and a metaphor were. That, that a simile and metaphor are figures of speech. A simile is a, both are comparisons. A simile is a stated comparison 
you know the 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 uh, snow was as uh or the white on the wall was as as white as snow you know it's a comparison uh or um uh, though your sins were as scarlet, the Bible says. You know, it's a stated comparison. And that's a, that's a simile. And a metaphor is an unstated uh, comparison where it just uh, names or calls something something without saying as. Like uh, Jesus is called the Lamb of God. He wasn't a lamb, but he is compared to the sacrificial lamb of the Old Testament. I'm not saying Jesus was like a lamb. But it's an so it's called a it's a metaphor it's an unstated comparison. Well, there's a book on my desk that's about three inches thick called Bullinger's Figures of Speech in the Bible, and it lists about a hundred other figures of speech that you and I were never clued into whenever we took our English uh, classes. And I was an English major, so um, I'm a typical product of our uh, <coughs> education system. But synecdoche, my pen is running out of. Drying up here like my like my throat, synecdoche. So you've got a new word for this morning that you can use. A synecdoche is a figure of speech of comparison, and uh, there are various different ways of using a synecdoche in different forms. But I'm not going to confuse you with all of those others. A synecdoche is sometimes used when you use a part of something to refer to um, to the whole. When you use a part of something to refer to the whole. Where you might talk about the heart of a person and you're talking about the whole of the person. You might talk about a, uh, in some passages of scripture, might talk about a person's soul and they're talking about not just their soul, but the whole person as, as one individual, one individual person. Uh, in another example that I could uh, derive from the scriptures is that um, in Genesis 14:17 it talks about the Amalekites, which we'll mention later on. That uh, says um, that they they uh, under, under Abraham they smote the whole field of the Amalekites, and the field of the Amalekites, the field really stands for the whole country. So a when you talk sometimes as a figure of speech, you talk about one part to refer to the whole of something. When you talk about the love of God, sometimes you're talking about all of God's character. You're talking about, uh, for example, when you say God is love, uh, that could include all of God's attributes. Talk about God's righteousness, you may uh, be including all of God's character in that process. That that is. So sometimes you can talk about His integrity under any of those elements within the integrity, and that is called a synecdoche. Okay, let's not get too lost here. First point, God is love, 1 John 4, 8 and 4, 16. Second point, God is light, 1 John 1, 5. Third point, the Old Testament connects love, righteousness, justice, and truth. That indicates the integrity, the wholeness, the completeness of God, all these parts working together working together in a harmonious whole. Psalm 33, 5, Psalm 85, 10. Psalm 89.14 and Jeremiah 9.24. Point number four, examples. Let's not just deal with trying to define something in an abstract manner, as I keep trying to emphasize for the prep school teachers. When you take these concepts, abstract concepts like honor, integrity, virtue, try to uh, anchor them in some sort of Old Testament reality or some Bible story. 
Uh, I want to go to Deuteronomy this morning. And 22 times in Deuteronomy, you have the Hebrew word ahav, which means love. So obviously love, used 22 times in Deuteronomy, is a key theme in the book of Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is a restatement of the Mosaic Law which is what Deuteronomy means. Deuteros meaning second, namas meaning law. It's a restatement of the law. For example, Deuteronomy 11.1 says, You shall therefore love the Lord your God and always keep his charge, his statutes, his ordinances, and his commandments. Deuteronomy 11.13, It shall come about if you listen obediently to my commandments, which I am commanding you today, to love the Lord your God and to serve him with all your heart and all your soul. So love is a major theme in Deuteronomy. From this, I want to draw a couple of extreme examples of love. We talked about one last time because it's clear, because these are included in the law, that this is part of what God means to love your neighbor as yourself. Now, these are harsh examples. If you haven't been under doctrine for very long, then you're going to really have problems with this. And that's one reason I chose these examples, is I want to shock your system a little bit so that you come to understand that that what the Bible talks about in love is is a lot more complex and multidimensional than what you think of. It it relates to and is in complete harmony with righteousness and and truth. In Deuteronomy 21a, we have our, our first example. Deuteronomy 21.8, we looked at this just briefly last time, so I'll just summarize it. This is the situation where you have parents who have a child who is a, a, a rebellious juvenile delinquent. Now, this isn't just a child who doesn't get along with you on occasion, although you may want to use that by application. And remember, this is the inspired word of God. This is not my opinion. This is not written by somebody who was just frustrated with his teenagers that particular day. This is written by God for a purpose because God is hes looking at preserving the national entity. And he understands what happens once authority begins to break down in a national entity and you allow it permissively to go unchecked or unrestrained. So God includes a provision for dealing with uh, adolescent rebelliousness. He says in verse 18, If any, any man has a stubborn, rebellious son who won't obey his father and mother, and when they chastise him, he won't even listen. So they've gone through the process of discipline. So, see, modern man looks and they go, this is abuse. But see, you have to start with the Scripture, not with some extra-scriptural concept. Well, they've gone through the process. They take him through the city. They have a little trial. And then if they are found guilty, then it's they, they are to take him out into the public square and to stone him to death. Verse 21, then all the men of his city shall stone him to death, so you shall remove the evil from your midst. See, the focus is, is not on, oh, this poor child, let's straighten him out. The focus is on the community as a whole. See, the focus is on the victims not on the person who is committing evil. And the focus, of course, is recognition that man is inherently evil and all are born sinners, and it's a purpose of parents to teach uh, teach children to control their sinful inclinations. And if the child does not learn that, then what can happen as an adult is uh, is extremely dangerous to society as a whole. 
Now, that's the first example. second example of God's love for mankind is the example of holy war, which only existed uh, for a short time in the period of the Israel's early conquest of the Canaanites. And the, this is exemplified in the commandment that was given uh, to, to the Jews to go in and destroy uh, everything in, uh, in the land. Joshua 6:21. they utterly destroyed everything. This, this is a description after they defeated Jericho. They utterly destroyed everything in the city, both man and woman, young and old. I mean, they wiped out competence, non-competence, children, infants. They, they were told, God told them to slaughter everybody. Young and old ox and sheep and donkeys with the edge of the sword completely destroy every living thing in the city. Now, that sounds awfully harsh, but you have to remember, you have to look at this in a broader context. Back when uh, about this happened in about 1400 B.C. and about 2000 B.C., 600 years earlier, when God called out Abraham and promised Abraham that land, God told Abraham at the time that he wasn't going to destroy the Canaanites because their evil wasn't ripe yet. You know, it wasn't time yet. God gave them another 600 years of grace to turn to him. And instead, they rejected him again and again and again, got more and more enmeshed in evil, and it was the Canaanites who who took uh, perversion to its greatest extremes in the uh, ancient world. And God, God knew in terms of the broad picture of humanity that if they were to continue like a cancer, this would infect and destroy the entire human race. And so just like you go in and you surgically remove a cancer, it was now time, uh, authorized by God to go in and surgically remove the Canaanites from the body of the human race. And so God wanted everything destroyed, man, woman, child, nothing was to survive. Now, we just think that's awfully harsh, but that's because we bring into it totally false ideas of what love is and what justice is. Let me see, show you the, uh, a consequence of this. Turn to Rome, uh, 1 Samuel. Turn to 1 Samuel 15. The last example where this holy war application was applied. The the, uh, Jews had been assaulted by the Amalekites, who were just a a huge roving band of uh, uh, Bedouins and brigands that had constantly plagued Israel since the Exodus. And uh, this is the... God's command to Saul to go destroy the Amalekites, which God had prophesied back in Exodus chapter 20. Samuel also said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people, over Israel. Now therefore heed the voice of the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, and that's a term for the Lord of the armies, indicating a military role that God has. I will punish, God says, I will punish Amalek, for what he did to Israel. So this is seen as the operation of the justice of God. But remember, the concept of holy war, this is where I'm tying it together, the concept of holy war is contained in the Mosaic Law. Jesus summarizes the Mosaic Law as love for your neighbor. So the function of this kind of righteousness and judgment 
falls within the summary of divine love. Love includes discipline and punishment. That's an application for parents. Love includes discipline and punishment in order looking at the long-term consequences of teaching restraint for sin and evil. Thus says the Lord God, the Lord posts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he ambushed him on the way when he came up from Egypt. Now go and attack Amalek and utterly destroy all that they have and do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, infant and nursing child. See, modern man just goes, this is so harsh. How can this be? But the Bible says this is part of love. And if you don't want to agree with that, then you're saying that you know more about this than God does. And that's the height of arrogance. You need to change your concept of what love is. But love has to, remember what I said last time, love has to be based on a system of absolutes. And the only way you can get absolutes is to go to the Word of God. You can't get it anywhere else. Because anywhere else is going to be based on finite knowledge or finite experience. Uh, so Saul gathers all the people. But Saul, see, Saul operates on human viewpoint. He don't want to kill everybody. You know, there's got to be some way to use some of this. So he spares Agag, and uh, verse 9, But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the ox and the fatlings and lambs and all that was good, and were unwilling to utterly destroy them. But everything despised and worthless they destroyed. So, so they don't want to fully obey God because they have qualms. You know, this doesn't quite fit our idea of love, so we're not going to do the whole thing. Well, then God's going to have a little uh, conference with Samuel and send Samuel in to straighten things out. So Samuel rose early in the morning to meet Saul, and, um, and Samuel's informed that, that Saul did not uh, kill everything. So Samuel comes to Saul, and... Uh, and Samuel says in verse 14, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? What do I hear? The sheep and the lowing of the oxen. And Saul said, listen to Saul's rationalization, They have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God. See, you always find some sort of religious reason to, to justify not accepting uh the love of God in terms of the harsher side of love, in terms of the application of righteousness and justice. Then Samuel said to Saul, Be quiet, and I will tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And he said to him, Speak on. And then Samuel lowers the boom and says that, to, informs him that uh, the kingdom is going to be taken from him and that he is going to uh, lose his... Uh, position because he disobeyed God. And then uh, uh, Saul goes to a superficial uh, repentance, and then you get the fav- my favorite part further on down in the chapter, where after Samuel rebukes Saul and Saul goes through the superficial repentance, the scripture says that Samuel then took Saul's sword and hacked Agag to pieces. That is divine love. Now, that's going to challenge your thinking. I know that for some of you, that is going to be a very difficult pill to swallow. But if you don't understand that, you're never going to have a real good understanding or solid understanding of what the Scriptures teach about love, that love is completely consistent with all the other elements of God's character and love that doesn't operate on an absolute standard of right and wrong is not love. 
Righteousness that doesn't operate in a consistent manner with love is no longer righteousness. It's arrogance. See, when love is divorced from righteousness, it becomes emotion. When righteousness is divorced from love, it becomes arrogance. And when justice is divorced from love, it becomes tyranny. So let me conclude by simply saying that love must operate on the basis of the totality of integrity, and real love must operate on the basis of God's character. Love looks at events in terms of their long-term effects, their consequences, and it's based on an understanding of absolutes, which you can get only from the Scriptures. Love is not thought of in terms of personal or emotional characteristics. The result of this is that when we have this kind of love and understand what biblical love is, then we're able to handle rejection, disappointment, hostility, antagonism without succumbing to mental attitude sins of anger, bitterness, jealousy, or the desire for retaliation or revenge. Only when we ground our love on the character of God and his integrity are we able then to fully function and grow in the spiritual life and handle the various tests that come our way in the form of people testing. Now, next time we'll come back and finish up with First uh, John chapter seven, or Second John seven, but we need to go ahead and quit. It's a little early, but we have a congregational meeting, our annual meeting, so we'll uh, we'll wrap up now. But remember, love starts at the cross. It starts with a judgment on God's Son for the sins of the human race. It starts with an understanding of God's judgment on an innocent person for the sins of the guilty. That's where our understanding of love begins. So we'll, we'll further develop this uh, next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this time together, for the opportunity to have our understanding of love uh, challenged and expanded by the illustrations of your love in the Scriptures. This, of course, is, has its greatest example in the work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation and uncertain of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Our eternal life is not based on who we are, what we've done. It's not based on some impersonal factor in, in the universe. It's not based on anything other than our relationship to Jesus Christ. Scripture teaches us that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But your free gift is salvation through Jesus Christ. All you need to do right now, right where you sit, is put your faith alone in Christ alone. There is uh, nothing that you can do, nothing, no bargain you can make, no uh, moral reformation you can, you can put in place that will ever impress God. The only thing that matters is your trust, your reliance in Jesus Christ alone. God, the Father's omniscient. He knows exactly what you trust in and when you trust in it for salvation. The instant you put your faith alone in Jesus Christ, you have eternal life. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we have studied this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.